welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome to Materials People. My name is Catherine Mondoa and I am a materials engineer and today I am joined by Marie-Therese Burton and Eli Seacrest, Elijah Seacrest. Marie-Therese is a PhD candidate at Lehigh University. She is studying alloy and microstructure design and she is a national defense science and engineering graduate. Eli is a jeweler and artist based in Columbus, Ohio. He's a graduate of Columbus College of Art and Design, and he makes unique pieces that push the boundaries of aesthetics and functionality. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, I think it'd be really great to hear your stories about what is the material that brought us here today. I contacted you both because I see that you're both studying and working with metals, but coming kind of from huge different perspectives, but you work with them quite intimately. This I've seen that this forms um, a large part of your practice. And so I guess my first question for the both of you is, how did you end up here? How did you end up in your current practice and why metals? Okay, so um, as Catherine said, I'm currently doing my PhD at Lehigh. Uh, we actually went together, uh, what the words, sorry. We actually went to Carnegie Mellon together for material science and engineering as our bachelor's degree. So that's how we met. Um, and so that's sort of a little bit of background on how I got started in a PhD program. Um, but going way back um, to when I was a child, my dad is an engineer as well. And so growing up, we'd always do like science experiments, building, tinkering things um, on the weekends. And I also did a program at the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST, where it was for middle school kids to get like hands-on experiments in science. Um, And a lot of the people that actually ran those programs are material scientists. Um, And so a couple of those programs were like making cement and learning what the different variables that you could use, like more water, higher heat to dry it, things like that. And how does that affect what your resulting material is going to look like? Um, and then one of the ones that was actually my favorite was one of the engineers, or I think he's a scientist, one of the scientists there had put out like all these different metal samples on the table. And some of them were like household objects and some were just like a chunk of metal. Um, and he gave us a list with like iron is magnetic and like several different like metals and the properties and said, go ahead, find out, figure out what they all are. Um, and I just thought that was the coolest thing of like, you, you don't need to be told what it is. You can yes. figure out what a material is by what the properties are. Yes. Um, and also you can affect those properties by mixing them together. So that was like way back. Um, and then in high school, I also did a couple internships at the Naval Surface Worker Center. Um, so I did some research on aluminum magnesium uh, sensitization, which is where as the temperature swings, 
um, you actually get segregation, I believe it's the magnesium, to the grain boundaries, and you actually form these cracks that you wouldn't expect. They're at pretty low temperatures and also pretty low um, stresses. So it's kind of a surprising uh, phenomenon. And I was just doing a little bit of very basic research on like, what temperature do you need to have this phenomenon happen? And then after that, I started college, took some classes, thought it was really cool, did an internship at new core steel so i got to see like big scale production of actual steel that's going into you know guardrails mm. car parts things like that um and i thought that was absolutely cool to just see like from literally metal pieces that are getting melted down we can melt it we can cast it we form it and then i was on the galvanizing line so i was on the final part where it's stripped and you just dip it in molten zinc and they use that for corrosion protection. Um, and then after that, I worked at Carpenter Technology, which is another metals company. I was in an R&D lab, um, and I did a couple of internships there as well. Really liked it, and then realized I wanted to do more of the research side and less of the like production side. And so that's why I applied to do a PhD. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Awesome. A lot of experiences in <laughs> a kind of short span. That's really cool. I mean, it's interesting. I think that pivot from going like kind of full-on production, seeing things at a grand scale and then wanting to then influence them on a smaller scale. I think it's it's kind of interesting how that path took place. Like you saw how the small scale affects the large. You did the huge, large things and now it's kind of going back to those roots. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you bring up a pretty interesting point that my first college internship was working with gigantic final scale product. And then now a lot of my work is I'm using an atomic resolution microscope. So literally as small as material scientists can go, mm. this is what I'm looking at. So it's very, I, I really like that material science spans that whole range from literally atoms to a building or a bridge. So yeah. 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 That's amazing. That's amazing. So I guess now that we have a bit of an overview on retrace, I'm going to I'm going to pause for a moment and maybe let's find out from Eli. Um, tell us a little bit about your experiences. Um, so there's actually is a lot of overlap between me and Marie Therese because when I was in high school, I went into the career center program for welding. So it was very much more of a hands-on relationship with that large scale metal production. And from there, I went straight from high school into a job constructing the handrails that you mentioned earlier. So we did ornamental railings out of steel and aluminum, which was a lot of welding, a lot of grinding, a lot of heating and bending and twisting and all the fun stuff that happens after it leaves the factory, after it's all made, which that was able to keep me afloat really well for about a year or so until I just kind of got tired of working 50 hours a week and being dirty all the time and just <laughs> lifting really heavy things when I'm not a very big person. Uh, so I went back to my like little kid roots. Both of my parents were artists and actually ran a gallery in the arts district in Columbus for 40 years. So ever since I was a kid, I was tinkering with stuff and working with my hands and making things out of wire and tape and just little doodads that weren't very big or impressive, but I wanted to inc increase the big and impressiveness of it. So I went into the Welding Career Center, then went to CCAD for 
fine art was my major at first, which eventually I uh, transitioned into contemporary craft, which is more of a focus on the hands-on making things, which the, I focus on jewelry and glass blowing, but I mostly do jewelry because the accessibility of glass blowing is not very high. I've been working with multiple different materials for a while now. I mostly like to focus with copper and bronze and silver because of the malleability and just very fluid. You can do a lot of different stuff with them. You can really stretch it out uh, in some interesting ways. Uh, yeah, I think that's enough of my backstory and history. I mean, I think that's like a perfect segue because that's actually something I wanted to kind of ask you is that um, like, what are some of these uh, materials that you use and what are the properties that you look for when um, making with them? Um, so maybe tell, tell me a little bit about that. Like, tell me about the kind of experience of finding, I guess, the right properties for what you want to do. It definitely depends on the piece. Are you more familiar with the mask work or the jewelry work? Do you like fingers, rings? I saw um, kind of both on your Instagram and mm -hmm. a little bit on your website, but I, do, you, you, do you make one or more, one or the other more frequently? Or I make them about the same. I tend to make the jewelry stuff a little bit more just because I'm trying to make a living and that's what actually sells. So for the jewelry, it's very simple what the necessities are. It's mostly purely aesthetic. So it's either, do I want silver color or do I want a warm color? Mm -hmm. So it's either going to be bronze or silver, unless somebody wants to pay me a lot of money, then I'll use gold. Like right now, I actually am working on some wedding bands for some friends of mine. And oh, they're going yeah. to have me use uh, 14 karat gold with that. So not like super high quantity, but it's very pretty and still. But one of them, the band for the man, is going to be Mokumegane, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that technique. No, it so are you familiar with Damascus? Yes. It's Damascus <laughs> with precious metals. So tell me, for, for this, I, I do not know. Like, I, I, I know nothing. So what, what, is, what is Damascus, guys? What, what's happening? Uh, do, you, do you want to explain Damascus? You probably have a better understanding of it, like a chemical or like a... Um, a why, don't, why don't you explain the process? And then okay. I can try to explain, like, why people cared about it. Boom. Okay. Go. So... Damascus and Mokumegane, so they're the same techniques with different materials. Okay, different techniques too, but the same premise with different mm -hmm. materials. So Damascus would be, let's use a knife, for example. You would take two different types of knife steel that react differently to different chemicals, mm -hmm. and you would layer them and fold them over and over again like colored clay, mm -hmm. which when you're just looking at the bill, it doesn't look like anything. Mm -hmm. But if you twist it and fold it over itself enough, then you etch it away. One of the types of steel will become darker in color, black, or gray, and the other one will remain shiny. So the wood, so the metal looks like wood or has mm -hmm. patterns in it and texture to it. And that's inherent to the material. It's not a paint or a coating. Um, so mokume is the exact same thing. Except instead of using two different grades of steel, you would use copper, which is red in color, and silver, which is silver in color, and gold, which is like yellow in color. So you have different tones. 
and then you can layer it, stretch it out, fold it, twist it, mash it up, put dents in it, and grind it down, and it'll give you different effects and different colors. Uh, one technique of mokume that I've done multiple times is actually by using quarters. Mm. So just regular quarters, cleaning the hell out of them so that they'll fuse together, layering them, heating them, and smushing them. And then you can carve away and the copper inner lining will be exposed compared to the nickel outer lining. So it'll wow. be layers of copper, nickel, copper, nickel, copper, nickel. And it just looks very organic and interesting. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah, so it's um, also just a method of yeah. it's, welding it's really similar metals, too. which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it's it gives you not only that beautiful, it's almost like a feathered look, mm-hmm. um, but for Damascus steel, a lot of the sort of lore about it is that it was, you could make a sword that was better than any other sword at that mm-hmm. time. Um. And a big part of the reason that people believe that is that they would have a higher carbon steel and then a lower carbon steel mushed together. And so you get that ductility and that sort of toughness that you can get from a lower carbon steel, but then you also get the hardness and the brittleness from the higher carbon steel. Mm. So you get the best of both worlds. And there's a lot of history about this, which People say like, oh, this is the best material ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's a lot of lore about it because it really was this amazing feat that they didn't know why they were able to make these properties, but they were able to. Um, they didn't know why their steel was better than somebody else, but mm-hmm. it was. And so people go back and they look at it and they say, okay, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Let's try to recreate it. And so a lot of times now we're coming from a, how do we build something up mm. versus back then it was like, how do we make this? And then I don't know why, but it worked. Here we go. Let's <laughs> win. Um, so it's, it's really an amazing story that they're able to like. To give some like specific historical context for that. There are two main like perceptions of Damascus and historical belief. One of those is mm-hmm. Katana blades traditional Mm -hmm. katana blades, which isn't Damascus as we know it now. It's Mm -hmm. just that traditional Japanese blacksmiths wouldn't have access to furnaces to to, um, correctly process Mm -hmm. steel. So what they would do is they would take shitty steel that they could make and they would forge it out, fold it over, forge it out, fold it over, over and over and over again. And that would homogenize enough it enough that it it would actually become a very good steel, a very sharp and effective steel, especially for swords. And the other bit of historical context is so Damascus is named after the city of Damascus in Syria, and they have found Damascus steel billets and swords as far up as Norway, like ancient Viking burials with sword that is true with steel that has traveled thousands of miles because of how good it was because it was used for kings so it's the historical context of it is crazy and nowadays what people make isn't it's damascus but it's modernized it's a lot simpler and it's a lot more technique focused it's also more aesthetic it's not like a necessity to make really 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our furnaces have changed so much from back then and like our ability to control the process has changed a lot. Um, there's no more throwing bones into a big chunk of right so there's no you never have like oh i dropped my hot steel on the ground and now there's dirt on it let me just but mm. we don't really do that anymore so it's a little bit um, but it, it is interesting to see like um you'll hear of like artists blacksmiths talking about damascus steel and it's like oh that's who cares about that now like mm-hmm. it's very it, it's cool that it's coming back into like popularity um because it's kind of not quite a lost art, but it's something that, like, engineering, science, they don't really maybe care as much. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those weird uh, things that, like... But it, it's definitely an important historical feature. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Things that, like, we don't know how they did it exactly, just because records mm-hmm. don't keep that well. But we can, like, replicate it. We can do things that are similar enough that we can call it Damascus. Mm-hmm. It's just some people on the internet get really um, pretentious about it, like champagne. Like it can't be champagne unless, unless it was made in champagne. <laughs> yeah. like, like, oh, it's not. Made. It's not a historical artifact. You can't call it Damascus. Like, like well, what else are we gonna call it? Come on now, Damascus ish. <laughs> it's not like a laser etched thing you're buying from China. It's fine. We're okay. You didn't paint it, so it's fine. <laughs> like. I mean, I do think that this kind of like this this overall story of like innovation through tinkering is really interesting. And I think um, there's so many kind of tidbits, so many points that I think are interesting in, in both of what you said. I mean, um, first off, this idea of like the lore around um, the development of this metal, like the fact that it's named after a place, the fact that you can find it in all these different places. And it makes me very curious about, um, on one hand, are there other kind of metal lores, other kind of um, techniques or, uh, or materials that kind of have this kind of notoriety. And also to another point that you guys kind of made about, you know, changes in uh, furnaces, specifically Marie Therese, when you mentioned like changes in furnaces, changes in the things that we can control. I think that's kind of an interesting angle to think of as well, that uh, because by nature, the fact that this was very much tinkering and creating the next best thing by kind of accidentally stumbling upon it, like what are some of the things that maybe people might not have known to control then that we can control now? Like what are some of those qualities and how did they affect, I guess, the resulting material? Definitely. So I guess one, oh yeah. No, go, no, ahead. go ahead, go ahead. You sound more confident. I'm <laughs> just thinking out loud. So go no, ahead. go for it. Think out loud. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of uh, disconnect in processes between like what, we do nowadays versus the past like computers have changed stuff so dramatically that it is kind of getting beyond like the realm of thought of what is the material that we're working with it's kind of become homogenized as like planes in a cad file or numbers on a spreadsheet which i personally barely use computers for my work it's mostly organizational keeping track of numbers but a lot of the people i interact with assume that i do like i'm not sure if you guys have seen the ring i made it's the scorpion tail yeah that curls over so that piece i have had so many people contact me asking for the cad file or like in 
insight into the design process in Blender and stuff. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I hand carved that out of wax and then cast it in silver. I never, I, the only technology I used was my phone listening to podcasts while I made it. It's all, it's all hand done. It's all in the, in my head and in my fingertips. So just kind of that, um, like I could probably make most of what I did if the like entire power grid went down right now. It wouldn't change me that much. It'd be slightly more annoying because I wouldn't have like grinders and sanders as easily available. But I can do that yeah. stuff by hand or just take twice as long. Yeah, I mean that's definitely hugely important. Just computers in general, um, and the power to store data and then also mm-hmm. analyze data that. Now we can do it at a rate that's so much more rapid than if we had to do it all by hand. Um, but sort of like Eli's, mm. I think, alluding to, there's a lot of value in not only knowing how to do it by hand, but doing it by hand. Mm. Um, and and having people who are proficient in, in analyzing the data by hand and knowing what all the variables mean in order to analyze sort of the the results that the computer gives you. Yeah. Um, I think in material science now, one of the big things is machine learning, yeah. which is definitely useful. We put in data, huge data sets with you know properties and process variables and compositions. Yeah. And then we can get these models to run um, you know, on supercomputers. I don't really know how that all works, but it, it can really learn what the correlations are, but it also takes a material scientist who knows, well, you know, toughness can never be negative or something like that to understand like, well, we can't just do the, what the computer spits out. Um, And so there's a lot of value in using both, using both a computer and a subject matter expert to sort of put together you know, how do we take the traditional methods and also digitize them, but not just digitize them, but still maintain that, that uh, knowledge. And I'm actually quite curious for you, Marie-Therese, I, I was seeing in, in the kind of research that you do on high entropy alloys, which I would love if you could tell us a bit more about them. Um, yeah. But I am kind of curious, like how... How do you prototype? What is your process of prototyping um, either materials or the kind of the processes that you're working on? So, well, you, why don't you tell us first about your progression in, in high entropy alloys, then we can go into more okay. depth. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just to sort of define a high entropy alloy is a mixture of at least five different metallic elements. I guess some people do add other dopants as well, but basically... It's called high entropy because your configurational entropy, so sort of the essentially the disorder or the uncertainty in randomness of orientation, like position of atoms in a crystal lattice. So you might have instead of an ordered lattice where you have an iron atom here and then uh, let's go with chromium here. Um, you half the time you have iron here and half the time you have iron here. Half the time it's chromium. Half the time it's chromium and you don't know which is going to be where um, throughout the whole material. So that's why the entropy is higher. I don't know if I explained that very well, but basically the big, 
is that most traditional materials have one or maybe two major components. So steel is, you know, 80 plus percent iron most of the time. Um, and then sometimes it has like 15% chromium and things like that, but it's mostly iron. Nickel, it's mostly nickel. Um, you might add some copper in there, but it's mostly one metal. And then even with like bronze and brass, they're, you know, mostly copper and nickel, copper and zinc. Um, wait, is it nickel? Copper and tin, sorry. Copper and tin and then copper and then zinc. But with high entropy alloys, you might have 20% iron, 20% chromium, 20% cobalt, and so on. Um, and that really changes your properties because you're not really working in this tiny section of the phase diagram. You're working in the middle where nobody really has thought to use that until about the early 2000s. Um, so that's why there's a lot of sort of rich research into those metals that we don't really know that much about because we never really ventured that far into the phase diagrams. But yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you can make them. You basically are trying to mix things that if you don't mix all of them together sufficiently, you'll form a lot of different phases usually. So typically what will, I think what most people do is arc melting um, and so you're going to melt it with like a plasma beam um, and it gets really hot and you can mix it. Um, and it also cools really quickly so that mm -hmm. you're quenching past the formation of like intermetallic phases um, or any other ordered phases. So that's one way. Yes. And sorry, just, just to um, add a little bit of context as well. Can you define what you mean by a phase in, in this, in this context? Oh, right. And like yeah, phase diagram. So, oh yeah. I forget that people don't have them everywhere um so phases in in like middle school you usually learn solid liquid gas mm -hmm. you might learn plasma if your teacher's really cool um <laughs> but but mostly those are the three that we kind of talk about within solids you can actually have different ordering of the atoms um and so that's as long as you have a consistent symmetric uh repeated unit throughout this whole, you know, chunk of solid, um, that would be a specific phase. So for example, um, I keep going back to iron because it's like one of the more basic ones, but there are two uh, solid iron phases. So one is face-centered cubic. And that means that if you imagine a cube that has, what does it have? Eight corners, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's a Sunday. Um, eight corners, and you imagine there's an iron atom on each of those eight corners. Then there's also an iron atom. This pen is not helpful. There's an iron atom at the center of each of the faces as well. So that's called face-centered cubic. And you have that repeating unit over a long range of order. Um, and so that's an FCC, face-centered cubic crystal, or the phase is defined that way. Um, and then also you have body-centered cubic iron. So you have an iron atom at each of the corners and then one in the middle of the cube. Um, and as long as that's repeating over the whole structure, that would be the BCC phase. And they occur at different temperatures, different pressures as well. So you can kind of map out based on the temperature or the pressure. Usually people don't use pressure now for solids because mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter, but some people do it. And sometimes it's necessary, especially for like gases. So you can map out temperature and composition, for example, and you find out what phases are present at each of those 
uh, sort of variable units as you move across temperature and composition space. And that's what we would call a phase diagram. You write it down, you say, okay, at 727 degrees Celsius, we know that iron um, with enough carbon in it will have what's called the eutectic temperature. So it's going to melt, it's going to form a mixture of liquid and solid at that point. But yeah, so that's kind of, I don't know if that was helpful or if that was more confusing. Um, I I got you. I understood. Okay, cool. I probably picked a more confusing diagram than I should have. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I think it made sense. Yeah. 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 So complicated atoms stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, once it's macro scale, it's not like most people are looking at the atom. So most people would use a phase diagram to understand, like, we know that FCC metals tend to be more ductile. BCC tend to be more brittle. So for a certain application, I might look at this phase diagram and say, I want to make sure I have ductile steel. So I want to stay in that FCC sort of phase range. That's also a lot of like going back to Damascus and knife making. That's the balance that knife makers are trying to achieve with getting that brittleness and that ductility balanced. Because the brittleness allows for a sharp edge. But if it's too sharp and too brittle, it'll shatter. And ductility is a durable blade, but if it's too durable, it won't have an edge and it won't cut anything. So that's a very fine line and a very delicate balance that you have to achieve. So that's like kind of the practical aspect. Yeah, definitely. And then when we talk about brittleness and hardness as well, I actually am not super familiar with like blade smithing so I think you'd be more helpful with this but I think you typically want it to be hard but the brittleness isn't as important it's the hardness right it's kind of one of those things of like brittle and hard are very parallel like they're not exactly aligned but they're parallel enough that in practical means it doesn't matter so you want it to be hard to have a very high hardness rating but just enough like in internal and inert ductility to not be brittle Mm -hmm. so that's also part of why damascus can be really helpful is if you use the two different types of steel you can use one that's more durable and one that's more hard Mm -hmm. um there's also so i share my studio with a couple of blades they made a few billets of damascus over the past couple of weeks so this is all like very fresh in my head but one of them, I'm trying to remember what the technique is called. Can't remember exactly. But it is not exactly Damascus because they're not like twisting and cutting it and making the patterns out of it. But they are just having a, sl- a sliver of really, really high carbon steel in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then two layers of Damascus on the sides that are more lower in carbon. Mm-hmm. So you have the really brittle that if you only use the really brittle stuff in the middle it would just would be a terrible knife it would probably shatter really quickly but it's very very sharp but then having the sleeves on each side takes all of that stress and is kind of like a sink for the shocks that run Mm -hmm. through it so it all balances out even though it's not mixed homogeneously and i guess i guess the similar kind of overall process like it's it's kind of damascus is doing in the macro what kind of marie therese's work in these kind of high entropy alloys is doing in the micro in the sense that 
I would imagine that if you have maybe I guess these different these different metals where you don't necessarily know the love like how homogenous everything is I guess you you mix them um, at these high temperatures to get them as homogenous as possible but I wonder Marie Therese does would you would you say that something similar would be occurring in that kind of space or not quite um, mm, don't, don't. I'd say that Damascus is a lot more like microstructure control. Okay. Um, so when we're doing a high entropy alloy, we typically want it to be a single phase. Right. Um, and so in Damascus steel, I think you only have two phases. You might actually have a few more. Um, but you, you think of having that lower carbon steel, which tends to be austenitic mm -hmm. um, or FCC. And then the higher carbon, I cannot remember what it was. I think it has more cementite in it which is iron three carbon but i'm not positive um but so you'll have two different phases that you're putting together and you're layering them so that those interactions between the two phases can sort of compensate for deficits in one if you only have one um excuse me so oh a lot of times when you're designing like a full material not just a single phase mm -hmm. you may want just a single phase or you may want to have you know a certain ceramic phase also form in your metal because yeah. uh, that's called precipitation strengthening actually so you can have like the fcc metal phase and then form certain types of carbides by exposing your metal to a carbon atmosphere when you anneal it and forming these carbides um, that are really strong really hard um, and really brittle by themselves but in this matrix of a more ductile metal, that can actually be really beneficial for the strength. So is I'd say that, that's a little um, bit similar. Is that process like case hardening? I don't know what case hardening is. Um, it's something that they do on like mid-range tools where mm -hmm. they just, I'm pretty sure they just, as it's being manufactured, they heat it up and then just drop it into oil or water. So just the very outer layer gets very hardened, but the inner yeah. layer, but the yeah. inside still stays nice and squishy. squishy. Yeah, so that would be a process called quenching. Um, well, it's not with... quenching oh, specifically. It's, not? It's, it's more specific than that. I'm not entirely okay. sure of the process because it's not the focus, because it's not like yeah. my main it's thing. It's not your, your wheelhouse, but yeah. I think that is more of what you're talking about with the um like specific yeah. stuff although not quite with like yeah so carbides. i'm not exactly positive if you'd have enough time and energy to form carbides when you do that yeah, um, i don't think it'd be like full carbides but, but it is just like a relatively inexpensive way of hardening tools like yeah. renders and stuff yeah so typically with like tool steel um if you t you get it really hot and then you may have like worked it and then heated it up um so worked it meaning like forged it uh or beat it with a hammer um so that you're forming a lot of internal stress dislocations um so you might instead of being this way one row will actually be shifted this way um so those those um can also help to strengthen the material but they also make it more brittle um so you don't always want them but when you heat it up, that helps them to relax and get back to sort of a more, a less stressed state, which can be good. But then once you, when you cool it really quickly, you're actually sort of freezing in 
what's called the martensitic structure. So it's not quite the BCC phase of iron. Um, it's a little bit more stressed than that. So it's typically a lot harder than the austenite or the FCC phase. And a lot of times they'll do that by quenching it in water or in oil, which oil I think is faster, uh, faster cooling method than water. But I think you can, I don't see why you couldn't get some kind of film like of oil, which would be carbon and then like heat it up again and form some carbides that way. So I don't, actually I'm not super familiar with that uh, part. Oil is a slower cooling method, but it's, uh kind of both so water when you dunk it in it makes a layer of steam which insulates it for a while and then once that steam collapses it the temperature shoots down and that mm -hmm. causes a lot of types of metal to shatter um so oil is a slower consistent cool down people use different types of oil for different stuff so some steels are fine being quenched in water but some knife steels will explode it's, oh, it's fair enough yeah, yeah. whatever um, do you know if you ever quench in sand for like bladesmithing and things like that? Um, and that's typically the slowest, I believe. Maybe they have like, like the blacksmiths I share my studio with do have like a bucket of sand that if something is mm -hmm. just like too hot to leave on a table, they'll stick it in the sand and just let mm -hmm. it sit. But I don't think anything they deal with needs okay. to yeah. be brought down that slowly. Yeah. Most yeah. of the stuff that I work with, the like copper alloys or mm -hmm. silver, um, most of that I can just toss in water and not worry about it because I'm not having to worry about the um, ductility and hardness of it unless I need it to be soft. Then sometimes I'll let it air cool if it's silver. It depends. But generally I just toss that stuff in water. Also, oil is gross to clean off of stuff. Yeah. I want to do that. I'd imagine you'd form some like scum or something. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. It's <laughs> gross. Something rough. Something not fun to touch. Yeah, it's all like, there's a reason I stopped working with steel so much. I don't want to be that dirty all the time. Slimy. I mean, I guess yeah, maybe, uh, do it. <laughs> a, a question I kind of have for each of you is like, what is... I guess, a, a dream project you would like to work on or like what is something that you see your practice working towards? Seeing some of your kind of previous works, um, kind of Elijah, seeing how these like larger full body mm -hmm. structures and the movement have started to evolve has been really interesting. Whereas Marie-Therese seeing, I saw that kind of your, your undergrad paper where you were focused on one high entropy alloy system and then kind of the next thing would be I believe was looking at how you can start to look at tools to design these high entropy systems, these more like computational tools to now we're looking at more at, I guess, more, more of these, more of these kind of tools for developing these systems more. We, yeah, please, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but I, I, I kind of had a wonder if you yourself are looking to develop um, a high entropy system of yourself, or if you're looking more at developing the tools to create them. Well, currently, my work has actually shifted away from the high entropy alloys. Ah. Um, so that's been <laughs> fun. Um, just because they are very finicky. Um, and so if you don't really, like you you have five variables of composition, I guess four independent, independent composition variables. And, you know, if you don't keep your process really clean and you get oxygen involved, and then you form an oxide that's more 
or that has like a higher affinity. So like chromium oxide, for example, is yeah. a pretty strong yeah. uh, bond. You don't, you maybe are taking that component out of your other system. And so they're very finicky with process control, especially in the way that I was doing them. I typically was using a process called mechanical alloying. And it's where you take metal powders in, basically, if you think of like a paint shaker, yeah. with little ball bearings in it, shake it really fast. Um, and it breaks apart the particles and it cold welds them together. Um, and then you can like center it and or press it and then center it sort of like a ceramic. Um, yes. There's a lot of like dirt, involved. <laughs> well, not real dirt, but like there's oils, there's, you know, when you have a powder particle, it has a lot of surface. Yeah. And so if you expose it to oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, you're going to form all these different oxides, nitrides on the surface. So it was a pain <laughs> to deal with those. I've worked on a bit of a more simpler system now um, that's more of a nickel-based, almost sort of more traditional uh, type of alloy. But I think overall, my shorter-term goals mm. are to get a lot better at electron microscopy <laughs> um, so that yeah. I can actually characterize what I've made. Yeah. Um, and ideally, I want to get to be able to look at the atomic structure and really understand what that means, which I know I can get there someday. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it takes practice. Longer term, I think eventually I want to be able to put my name on some alloy and say, hey, I made this and mm. now it's used in a product. But I don't have a specific goal of like what type of metal it could be really anything. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really kind of interesting, this this reflection that like, you saw this really cool technology, you saw this really cool opportunity and you went into it and it was like, okay, like, <laughs> I don't know if this is, this is the way and like this kind yeah. of pivot, I think that this pivot is really, is really interesting. And it, as you say, it has implications for, I guess that large scale use that, that kind of consumer yeah. use, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Like I don't think high entropy alloys are bad by any means. No. I just think that, especially being a graduate student where I've really only had a career of, I don't know, two and a half years mm -hmm. um, post-college. Like, I, I think that jump, jumping into the deep end, while it seems like a fun thing to do, um, can be really hard. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that, especially when I have like formal mentors, formal advisors, yeah. to take risks, but not take so many that I'm overwhelmed um, and try to sort of build up instead of throwing things at a wall and then seeing what sticks. So that sort of explains the pivot. No, that's 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 a really that's a really good way to look at things. I think, yeah. And uh, Elijah, tell me tell me a little bit or Eli rather, sorry. Uh, tell me a little bit more <laughs> about um, where you see your 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 work going. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I'm sure making high entropy alloys also makes a lot of slag. <laughs> so that sounds painful really pain like i've tried Fortunately, we don't we don't melt them in our lab we just center so we don't have slag but yeah okay, that's I no, can imagine. still just a lot of just slabs of well that didn't work out quite right <laughs> yeah I've, I've been there plenty of times yeah i have a drawer of samples oh yeah yeah i'm sure metal <laughs> is hard it is but it's um, better than ceramics <laughs> it's better than polymers <laughs> i love polymers <laughs> so it's fine. I get it. They confuse me. You, you say better than ceramics, and all I can think of is just 
getting my hands dried out by the clay on the throne <laughs> wheel, and I'm just like, <laughs> just completely. Is this is gonna be a whole thing about how different materials people are like. Oh, these other materials are like super. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, like, I cannot do it. Oh. <laughs> We're very picky people. <laughs> we are because we spend a lot of time staring at the same thing all the time. You know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, dream projects for me are like so let's start talking about like the more mechanical masks that aspect of my work i want to do those bigger and more complicated than ever which i have been kind of working towards lately with making like gears out of wax and then casting those in bronze and having them interact with each other which i've actually got uh, a few sprues stuff few things ready to cast this week so that should be I've got a few different plans for making those mechanical masks all really big and complicated. Like I've got one concept bouncing around in my head that uses this round profile chain. So if you twist it on one side, it twists on the other. So to have just a fan of things that go up and down with the mechanism, with the movement of it. That is amazing. So that we'll see if that works. It might just end up hurting my face. We'll see how it goes. I mean, that's when you can use a polymer. Just put a little pad on your head. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I, I've had the times, or like just little pads of leather, just something. Ooh. Oh, leather. Yeah. Eliminate the needs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so sorry, oh Catherine. <laughs> oh, now we're going to the biopolymers. Oh, <laughs> to Reese. So I powder coat a lot of my work, mm-hmm. which is like a really fine, dry pigment, like polymer that you then bake on. And I bought oh. an oven used from Habitat for Humanity specifically for that reason. And in one of my videos, I was like, I use this oven only for this because it's plastic. I am baking I plastic. I'm not going to use it for food. And then mm-hmm. I got people in the comments being like, oh, I use my home oven for Sculpey all the time. And I'm like, you're poisoning yourself. You are poisoning This is so time. stressful. There's a reason we don't eat in lab. Oh, true. Pushing, pushing <laughs> oh, the boundaries of what's mechanically possible. Like, what? it, yeah, do you cast all of your parts or do you ever like machine them? Mm. Um, I don't really have access to much machining stuff. Mm-hmm. Most of what I do is cast and hand finished. So I will carve it in do you, are you guys familiar with the lost wax casting process at all? I am not. Please t- please do tell. The process involves this is the guy. The scorpion ring. All of this was initially carved in wax because it's a lot softer and a lot more easy to work with and you can like mm-hmm. melt it with a little heat pen and it's fine. You can't do that with silver. <laughs> So I carve the entire thing in its entirety in wax, disassemble it, and then sprue it all up with more wax so it's all connected into a single Mm. tree, which this, I have to think a lot about the fluid dynamics of how it's going to be. Because once it's sprued up into a single piece, you completely encase it in plaster, melt the wax away, heat the plaster up to about 900 degrees Fahrenheit, and then I... There are a couple different ways of doing it. You can either put the flask with the plaster in a vacuum machine and then melt up the metal and pour it into the hollow cavity and have the vacuum pull through the stone and that will pull all of the metal into every little nook and cranny. 
every crevice. But I don't like that method very much because it's finicky. And if the seals aren't quite right, then it's mm. just not going to go very well. It's really limited with how intense and complex stuff it, it can be, even though you can do larger scaled stuff. Because the other option is putting it in a centrifuge. Oh, so you can centrifuge molten metal? Wait, sorry. That That's crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> so you put the flask in a spring-loaded centrifuge with a crucible right next to it. You melt the metal into the crucible and then release the centrifuge mechanism. So the entire apparatus gets spun around and around and the molten metal gets thrown into the flask with the plaster and holds in place that way. And it just keeps spinning until it cools down enough that you can set it aside. And then before it cools down completely, you dunk the entire thing in water and the water will go into the plaster, boil and bubble and chip it away. And that's how you get it out of the stuff. And then from then you just have to cut it up and clean it up and put it all together. And you get this guy, which you can see like the amount of detail. Yeah. There's like- so that was all a single mold? Yes. Or like a single cast all at once? Mm-hmm. Just like separate pieces. So then I had to take it all apart and like hollow out or like grind out the um, openings for the hinges and stuff because okay. when you put things through the casting, it'll shrink by like 4%-ish. Mm-hmm. So like if I have a two millimeter hole, then it's going to be just a tiny bit under two millimeters. I have to go through with a two millimeter drill bit and just ream it out just a little fix bit. It up. Just and fix it up. That's crazy. For our listeners who are listening and not watching, the this this piece this kind of scorpion ring is on eli's instagram but to see this like moving in life is really it's just crazy because there's a bunch of small pieces all held together by these tiny little screws and there's a lot of detail going on it just moves as he bends his finger it's super cool yeah Um, this is one two three four five six seven eight separate cast pieces that are held together with brass tube rivets and the chain is a brass chain that runs the length and up here is a silver tiny silver screw like tiny like 14 gauge wire and then down here is another uh, brass screw that holds it in place so i can also disassemble the entire thing if i need to which is which is great for like the ongoing life of this piece that it can continue to yeah you know that's that's awesome worn this thing every day for the past six months and it's gotten dirty Mm-hmm. like it's it's solid it's a it's a solid thing it, it i think it's gonna hold up really well over the course of its lifetime yeah or over the course of my lifetime i mean it, this is a about three ounces of silver oh my goodness it's also pretty heavy especially for a ring so that is the lost wax casting process mm-hmm. which also the centrifuge that we have at my studio but this thing it's completely open, completely oh. exposed, and vertical. Oh my god. Vertical? What? <laughs> I don't even know what made vertical centrifuges is so stressful. I didn't what did Catherine, I do you just... remember the Sharpie? Oh, <laughs> the god. Sharpie machine? Oh god. Oh god. <laughs> no, I didn't know that they made vertical centrifuges either. Like the thing it's crazy. They, they haven't been made since the 70s because they are wow. scary. Because it's so dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I mean, oh it it's, it works. It clearly, I could see why they use them as insane as this history. So I it's guess just... it's good. Well, also, I love the like vertical one because it the amount of power 
that it oh. push, that it puts into the metal, like it really forces it into the mold. Yeah, and gets like I've I've used the horizontal ones too, and it is much finer detail. Like mm-hmm. it is, I can almost see the grain of the plaster in the metal. It's ridiculous. Like I could probably put a leaf in it, and it would cast. That would be pretty cool. It's like Actually, this, you know, burn. It probably burn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be cool. In theory, it's cool. That's the thing is, um, so the lost wax, you use wax because it burns cleanly, but you can put anything organic in there if it'll burn mm-hmm. and then just cook it out and it, you're left with the hollow cavity. Fair. So I could just put a leaf instead of some wax and it would cast. Like I've got a pine cone that my mom made in the 80s. Oh, I mean, it also makes me curious, like, would you, would you then kind of create different surface treatments by putting in different things that you can burn within? Or I guess to the earlier point about, like, if you had a sore and it drops on the ground, it's like, well, then just kind of bang it right back in. Like, if you, if you were to kind of... Um, it would be very unpredictable. Uh, yeah. But actually, one thing that I have been, that I am going to be experimenting with on this next casting is I got some bronze powder. I'm going to mm. try coating one of my little wax pieces in and then casting it in silver with the hope that the bronze would adhere to the inside so then there'd be a little layer of bronze and then I could put like a patina or a treatment on the bronze and then have the silver underneath and just kind of see what happens but I'm kind of ex- exactly what I'm kind of expecting to happen is the wax will just melt and then run out and pull the bronze with it but we'll see yeah. how it goes. Uh, you never know till you try <laughs> exactly that's the hands-on approach you never know till you exactly. try exactly it could also depend, I know this is like way far ahead, it could depend on the humidity too. Mm. Because I think, is it, wax is like stickier if it's humid. Well, this, the um, wax I'm using is a pretty like, it's this very specialized wax. Mm. Okay. So I actually use two main types. There's carving wax, which is as hard as a plastic and it melts at about 250 degrees. Oh. Cool. So it's a lot more like durable. Like this okay. was all carved out of that, which is why I was able okay. to incredibly fine yeah. detail out of it. And the other type of wax that I use is <clears throat> wax. So I've got a pressure pot that has the mm-hmm. wax in it and a little spout. So I can take a silicone mold of the pieces, put it against the wax injector, and then inject hot wax into it to make duplicates. Okay. Yeah. So that's how I've, so like if you see on my website, mm-hmm. all oh, of my so jewelry smart. and rings, I've got multiples of one style. I don't carve mm-hmm. each one of those by hand. I carve one, <laughs> make a mold, and then reproduce it. That's how I can keep the prices not three or $400 a ring for the most part. Yeah. That makes sense. At first I thought you made each of them from scratch every time. And I was like, how is this? <laughs> <laughs> this? How does he make money? <laughs> it took me 35 hours to carve. Oh, this was four oh solid days to carve. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. you better save the mold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I the mold. So I, that's, and, but the mold is also just like a starting off point. Mm-hmm. Is the reason you're able to get such incredibly fine detail out of the plaster when you cast it is because those are one-use molds. It's okay. one wax to one mm-hmm. silver. You can't reuse those because they get destroyed. But a silicone mold is not. So it usually breaks the wax when it's coming out or it's not as like precise and detailed. And it just, it needs a lot of adjustment Mm -hmm. after it's made before I can screw it up and cast it. So it's still, 
eh, about six hours of wax work to get each one of these like up to snuff of repairing bits and resizing if somebody buys um, one because mm-hmm. yeah this is made to my finger it's not made to yeah. anyone's finger it might work with someone else's finger <laughs> but i i, I guess because you were you were describing the technique and to best yeah. job was this was this kind of was your ring i mean yeah also like i mentioned my wax injector earlier that i used to make molds of i didn't feel like paying 900 dollars to buy one so i made it out of thrift store parts Oh, that's awesome. I made it out of a eBay uh, aquarium temperature controller, a crock pot heating element, a pressure cooker, and a... <laughs> <laughs> um, Where is this valve. getting out? And a bike valve? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's got to be pressurized. So I've got like oh, a bike. So that sounds like, like you go boop, 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 boop. It just goes boom. Because it's <laughs> that's like... what I was doing. But now mm. I use... I automated it so now i use one of those little 12 volt um emergency car tire inflators oh my goodness it's literally junk but it works Wild. just yeah making little elements for the masks like hinges and bits that hold the wire hold everything to place and using gearing to reverse directions because mm. all of the masks function on like a seesaw lever mechanism so it's like the pivot is out here and then I pull down on this side and then it goes up on the other side with my jaw. So it's like, ah, uh, yeah. But if I want the hinging mechanism to be really far back, then I can't have the other side of the seesaw in my head. So I need to use gears to get it reversed. So it'll do that kind of a thing. Ooh. Which yeah, sure. I did do recently and it worked really well, but I need to keep on furthering that experimentation and working on that. Yeah. And, um, also have been experimenting with different alloys to get different effects with those masks as well talking about actual conversational stuff been working with pure copper bronze and brass which each one is given very different properties i like my favorites have been bronze and brass to work with mostly because brass has a good amount of springiness to it while the bronze Mm -hmm. is just a lot stiffer like the okay. copper often will deform on stuff, but mm-hmm. it's really good for getting aesthetic details and twists and holding pieces together. So if I have two pieces of wire side by side, wrapping the two pieces in copper to make the mm-hmm. joint stronger. That's interesting. When you do something like wrapping the joint with the wire, do you like heat treat that after? Or is that sort of the final step? All of the connection points are actually tin soldered. Okay. So it's so that not, makes them final, like more yes. rigid at the end. Yeah. And it's not like the strongest bond ever. Like each individual mm-hmm. kind of point of contact could break if you tried, but the masks work because each one has between three and five hundred joints. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so you need some flex there too. Yeah. So there's a lot of, it's like a lattice. It's like a, it's like a web. So there's yeah. a lot of little points that hold it together. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very fun. And it's also um, part of the reason I, that's part of why I don't like to silver solder the masks is because there are so many joints, it would just take forever to heat the metal mm-hmm. up to a much higher temperature mm-hmm. to get silver to flow, even though the joint would be mm-hmm. stronger. Mm-hmm. Also, because 
heating it to that high of a temperature would anneal the metal too much. Yeah. And that would make a lot of the um, lattice flex in ways yeah. that I don't think Yeah. Like just heating, just tin soldering, heating it up to like 450, 500 degrees doesn't affect the bronze or the brass at all. And they still remain very springy. Yeah. Like, it does affect the brass mm-hmm. a little bit, but not the bronze. Yeah. So I guess with all this in mind, but I just want to thank you guys so much for um, taking the time to speak with me, speak with each other today. Yeah, it, was, it was a fun refresher of things that I haven't thought about in a like, technical sense in a long time. Yeah, it's been really great to like talk about things that I don't get to talk about. Thank you guys so much. Really, <laughs> truly. I think this has been great. We've got, we've got health and safety. We've got some great mm-hmm. jargon. We've got all kinds of alloys and techniques. I mean, really this has been, this has been really going to be so lost. <laughs> we like, what is going on? I know. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> when you edit it. Materials People, episode one. Thanks for tuning in. Patrice and Eli, thank you so much for your presence once again. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify